0: I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We're going to go through our catechism for the week before we proceed there in Acts chapter 10. So if we can have that on the screen. We've been doing this um, every week of this current year. We'll continue through the year. But what we do, if you're visiting with us, I'll read this question and then we'll all answer it together. Question number 17, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Good job. And on Wednesday evenings... One of the reasons why I wanted to include this in the service is a commercial for our Wednesday evening Bible studies. That is the topic that we'll be covering. Last week was what is sin, this week what is idolatry. And we've, it, it provides a platform for the uh, systematic study of theology. And what we do here on Sunday mornings is systematically verse-by-verse studies of a book of the Bible. We began Acts last September... And we arrive at Acts chapter 10 this morning. We're going to read the whole thing, so we'll have to pay attention. It will go by faster than I think you would think, because there's, there's some interesting stuff in here. There's visions and dreams, and uh, well, we'll see as we move along. Then we'll pray, ask for the Lord's help to understand and obey. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for... I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa. Ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word, and thanks be to God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we once again ask for your help to understand, and we ask for your strength and grace to obey. Lord, would you speak to us through this, and would you address any problems? that we don't only find in these men, but find in ourselves. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it took us a while to read through an entire chapter, but the way the 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 chapter unfolds, I, I felt it would be worth a few more minutes today than to try to figure out who would be here next week to hear part two. Uh, you can see with your eyes that there are differences between one Sunday to the next. And when we're studying through the Scripture to try to understand and obey it, sometimes a bigger chunk is justified. Sometimes a smaller chunk is needed. And we're going to have to work harder today for one reason in particular, in seeing the full significance of what we just read, which is basically summarized as... Uh, the Gentiles receive the gospel and God receives the Gentiles. The reason why that's going to be difficult for us and difficult compared to the audience that read this when it was written two millennia ago is because most of us are about as kosher as a honey-baked ham. (laughs) We don't see this through Jewish eyes. We are unprepared to know the massive gulf Between these two people groups. The Samaritans were one thing. Because they were made up as far as their lineage of Gentiles and Jews. This is Gentile. And Jews are carrying to them the gospel message. Supported by God's orchestration of these visions that put these people together at the right time. So, before the 10th chapter of Acts... Christianity was distinctly Hebrew, which in the New Testament we call Jewish, same group of people. Jesus was a Hebrew, Uh, the 12 disciples who later became apostles, at least 11 of them, they were Jews. Uh, We hear Jesus speak of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all Hebrews. Jesus' ministry was first to the Jews. He said himself, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But after his death, burial, and resurrection, things changed. And he had told them in little veiled comments and then some more that were more plain and clear that it was God's intention to start with the Hebrews but that they, in being blessed, would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And it shouldn't surprise us that when God chose to officially open the door of salvation to the entire non-Jewish world when it was time... "...that it should be accompanied by specific signs and wonders to validate its trustworthiness." As the work of God, just as He'd done on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem with the Jews, who were now Christians, who believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit signified what had taken place. Same thing when uh, those believers in Samaria came to faith, and Peter and John went down, laid their hands on them, then you saw more signs and wonders... The same is going to be true with this but in the form of visions and then later uh, the gift of the Spirit with tongues and signs. So what we'll do uh, to make sure we're we're thorough and keep pace, let's look at first, let's look first at Cornelius. We we meet him first and then we'll look at Peter. Both are prominent characters in this 10th chapter. Both receive a vision from God with special instructions, and both accounts are quite detailed. And whenever we see the author, like Luke or John or anyone that's writing, spend a lot of time on one thing, well, we can understand that means it's extra important. The details are given to us not just for inquiring minds that want to know, but to show us how this works and what is implied, what is said clearly what there is to understand and how we're to obey. Before the gospel can go to the Gentiles, it needs to go to one Gentile first. And that man's name is Cornelius. And thinking through how to write these things and explain them to you, I'm sure that someone in this room has already thought, hmm, Cornelius, that's that Yukon guy from the cartoon that shows at Christmas, right? Right? Sometimes I just like to address the things that run through people's mind while they're trying to pay attention in a sermon. But before there ever was Yukon Cornelius, there was a Roman general who later became a dictator whose name was Cornelius Sulla. It's kind of early in Rome's history, but this guy freed 10,000 slaves and did with them what would be kind of the precursor to a praetorian guard. He 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 armed them and trained them. They, as being slaves and then freed men, thought so much of this man Cornelius Sulla that many of them named their sons Cornelius. And afterward, that was a very common name. Now, where this man fits in and if it ties back to him, we wouldn't know. But that's his name. His name is Cornelius. Um, What we'll do is look at what Cornelius was, and that's described right here in the text, right out of the gate. And then we're going to address what he wasn't. And there's other places in Scripture where we can see that. Because the question is, was this man already converted? He just needed hands on him for the sign, like the situation perhaps in Samaria? I think it's very evident that he had not yet been converted. So there was these things he was, then we'll discuss what he wasn't. But then by the end of the story, he definitely is. So we're going to look at what Cornelius would be. So look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, devout man, feared God, gave alms, prayed continually. I'm summarizing here. So, we can say at least that Cornelius was an important man. He's a centurion. In modern uh, American parlance, that would be a captain uh, or a company commander of roughly 100 men. Some places we see in history, it's a little more, it's a little less. But when it says part of the Italian cohort, that sounds dangerous, doesn't it? A cohort. I always want to look at that in a mysterious, maybe, Uh, clandestine type um, people use words like that for for drama but it really just means a regimen and they were made up of six centuries so you have six centurions in a cohort so this man was one of six and they're stationed in Caesarea if you add ten cohorts that makes up a legion that's somewhere between five and six thousand men and this is what Jesus was talking about when we Met together last week, calling down legions of angels. Lots of angels. Four characteristics, though, follow this description of his profession. And it seems that Luke's emphasis is not on the man's authority so much as his character. Uh, It tells us he was a devout man. That carries a religious designation, doesn't it? Uh, He was religiously principled, you could say you could add sincere, virtuous, decent he's a good man add to that that he was a God-fearer and this is significant because we see it in the New Testament several times almost as a technical term to describe someone who's not a Jew but has a sympathetic relationship with uh, the Jews or with their God Uh, not a full proselyte, wasn't a convert hadn't been circumcised, didn't follow the law of Moses didn't keep his dietary restrictions but it's obvious from the description he had an appreciation a respect, even a reverence for the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob Uh, there are other people in scripture that as much is said and that's what we see about this fellow add to that he gave alms generously to the people So he had compassion for the poor. And then finally, we're told that Cornelius prayed continually to God. That always is, that one there, my inquiring mind would like to know more. Because as a Christian, for much of my life, and full-time ministerial service for much of my life, I still don't know how to pray. Anybody that says they've figured it out, I kind of consider them suspect. But this guy doesn't even know the man personally through his son Jesus, but he prays. That's, that's some kind of faith. Maybe it's a superstitious faith. I'm not sure. But it says that he prays a lot to God. And then verse 22, if we were to skip forward to later in the discussion when these men are describing um, Cornelius to Peter... It says, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. The whole Jewish nation knows about this guy and respects him. So I think, at, at minimum, this is a, a wonderful category to have for a good man who's a lost man. It's good for Christians to, to think that through. Because usually we want to do either one or the other, of something we shouldn't do. If you grow up in the church, especially grow up as a pastor's kid, you might just assume uh, that all non-Christians are, 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 are wretched souls that cuss all the time, have all kinds of tattoos. Uh, what do they say? Smoke, drink, and chew, and go with the girls who do. And and they're just, if they're not saved, well, then they're totally reprobate, right? That's not the case. In fact, there are people who don't know Jesus who are more moral, more honest, maybe more kind, maybe more loving in a way that people can perceive it than many Christians. Ask a waitress which day of the week they like to work. And then ask them which way they don't, which day. I asked this as a college student, just because I like to know what people think of the team we play for. <laughs> Most of them don't like it. We're cheap. That's what they say. Why is that? Uh, at a conference I was with at this past week, I uh, spent the week in Louisville, the last together for the gospel. A conference 12,000 in attendance and the best part was the music 12,000 men and one piano that's it no band no, no lights no fog just hymns a piano and 12,000 men and the last song when I left I thought I think I have my reference point I hope will be totally blown away in glory. But that's got to be what it's like, even in a sliver, to hear people praising the Lord. But at this conference, one of these men, Mark Dever, had the nerve to talk about authority structures and that not all authority structures corrupt men absolutely, that there's a right way and a wrong way and uh, some of the points uh, that he made were reading from a book written by a slave who was freed who talked about the worst slave owners as being those who say they belong to Jesus. Now see, that, that, that's the other side of the coin. Sometimes we'll, we'll want to mess up. We meet a really nice person who doesn't know Jesus Then we're scrambling to try to figure out, can my theology account for this? Surely this guy is so nice that he has to be right with God. Not if he doesn't know Him. So we want to look at it one of either of the, the wrong ways. And what Cornelius does help us understand is that because of common grace, we can learn quite a bit. We can be blessed quite a bit, benefit greatly by the work or the friendship or the art or music or whatever from people who don't know Jesus. It's the effects of common grace. They're still made in his image and they still reflect his glory whether they know him or not. But on the other hand, what Cornelius was not, he was not a believer, should help us guard against assuming that everyone who is decent... has some kind of chance at being passed through because they're not as awful as, say, they could be. So that's what Cornelius was. Let's now look at what Cornelius was not. And we do not believe he was a true believer, not yet. Other verses of Scripture help us with this. If we were to look in chapter 11, which is next week, in verse 14, Peter's going to give an account of this story to the fellows in Jerusalem And he's going to be describing what happens. And just to snatch one thing he said out of the middle of it. Verse 14. He will declare to you. This is Cornelius speaking about his dream. A message by which you will be saved. What saved Cornelius? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message. Not Peter. Not laying on of hands. Not dreams. What was necessary for him to come to faith. Saving faith. Is the knowledge of God's terms, which would be the gospel. Those terms hadn't been delivered. He hadn't agreed to those terms, so he's not a believer. And then in Acts 2, this is Acts 2, 5, um, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Skip down a bit when they heard this. They were cut to the heart. You remember this. Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We killed the Son of God. What do we do? These were devout men, by the way, that says, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Say so you're sorry. Get right with God. He didn't say, well, uh, they need to repent. You're devout. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep trying your hardest and make sure you're sincere and you'll be fine. Because that's not the way it works. That's why he didn't say that. And then uh, verse 18 of verse... Chapter 11, going back. When they heard these things, they fell silent. That's the men who heard the report. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Hadn't heretofore, but it was then, after the message of the gospel. So I think it's absolutely clear we can conclude that this upstanding fellow who outshines many Christians is not indeed regenerate, born again. Not yet. So what Cornelius would be picks up in verse 5. So we've knocked out our first two points. We'll use this last one as the rest. Verse 5, And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner. We learned that at the end of last week's passage, two weeks ago. Whose house is by the sea. Joppa is a port city. So Luke's shifting the perspective of the story from Cornelius to Peter and then back to the two of them when they meet. So it's kind of like a meanwhile going on here. Verse 9, The next day, I'm going to summarize, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, came hungry. While they were making his lunch, he fell into a trance, saw the heavens open, something like a great sheep descending, All kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. Then came the voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Voice came back a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then three, two more repetitions, three in total, and then it disappears. So part of the story, I think this part, gets the most attention because uh, it's very dramatic and visual, right? I would ask for a raising of hands. I won't do that. But I, 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 I got an assumption that your experience matches mine if you've been in church a significant amount of time or most of your life. But don't most preachers who preach through this have just a good old time making jokes about what was in that blanket? Like barbecue and bacon and shrimp cocktails. Right? Y'all are laughing. You've heard the jokes, right? The point of the whole blanket. Peter was hungry. He was told to eat. The dream is about food. But it's an illustration of something more important. And the illustration of serves to teach the the idea of having preferences, especially favoritism. Um has a lot to do with partiality all of which is done and over with since the veil of the temple rent after Christ had said it is finished that's what's being worked out here and we'll we'll look as we go on that there's a lot of things that are changing and and especially the Jews are having difficulty with what has been for so long now is going to change. And where they were alone for so long, everybody else is invited in to have the same thing they have, even even more full. Uh, They had a a shadow of it. The church, them and the Gentiles, will see it clearly. So this is not a proof text for dietary restriction or lack thereof. There are other passages for that. We have guidance from both Jesus and the Gospels And Paul and other passages that talk about food and how you're supposed to see it. But as far as this goes, and even much of the other, I wrote these down. Vegetarian, vegan, paleo, keto, carnivore, whole food, raw food, Mediterranean, South Beach, Atkins, Weight Watchers, or deal a meal. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Eat what you want to. You're smart people. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. Some of the stuff, if you ate too much of it, it'll do things contrary to your health. You can fast, you can fast intermittently. You can have it all. All of that had a purpose. And there's paragraphs of verses that describe how God wanted these people not just to look different and to think different and to act different, but to eat different and to clean themselves differently. And then once that purpose had been served, it had been fulfilled in Jesus and it no longer served a purpose. But for Peter... And his appointment with Cornelius, this is going to be instrumental in opening his eyes to the fact that certain things don't matter anymore. They had a purpose. And they still show us what the law does and how it functions. And how Jesus fulfilled it. And what Jesus is for us that we can't do for ourselves. But as far as the food, hey, I'm thinking if if I was drawing a picture illustration for... uh, children's Bible or something, the contents of that blanket would look more like an Asian wet market than a McDonald's. I mean slimy, creepy, crawly, awful things that if if you want to eat it, be my guest. But isn't it true that we each in our culture have things we think are are are, are fit to eat and other things that aren't. My dad used to say when I I remember the first time I said, Dad, we're gonna go down here to this this place and uh Get some sushi. You want to come? And his comment to any question remotely close to something that he didn't like, he'd say, Never been that hungry. I said, Well, one day you might. And he'd say, Not today. So we kind of get what's going on here. There's some very real things that the food means to these men. But the far more important thing has to do with the third key to the kingdom. Remember, Peter had used the first key to unlock the gospel to the the Jews, the second key to unlock the gospel to the Samaritans. This is the third key to unlock the gospel to the Gentiles. Pentecost, Samaritans, it's all the same, but this was the next step. And this was the biggest change yet. It'll take Peter a while to figure out what the dream meant. But he's going to open the door to a group of people who were total outsiders, heretofore excluded from God's covenant with Israel. Now, I didn't mention it two weeks ago at the very end. We kind of left that last verse that Simon is going to spend some time, many days, with another Simon, a tanner. That has significance. Peter's already being forced into situations he wouldn't normally be comfortable in. What's the big deal in staying in a house with a guy with the same name? That's not the issue. What the guy did was the issue. He was a tanner. What does a tanner do? Tans hides. Tanning hide involves fooling with dead animals, which would mean they're unclean. And any self-respecting Jew didn't have anything to do with people that were unclean ceremonially. Peter's staying with this man in his house. That's huge. Luke doesn't even address the significance of it. comes back up here and again. But now, while he's on the rooftop in a hypoglycemic fit, perhaps, he's hungry, doesn't have any food, he's in a trance, trance is over, dream has been revealed, trying to figure out what it means... The men sent by Cornelius are closing in on the front door. And then God's Spirit comes to him a second time, tells Peter to answer the door. Now, this is the perfect setup if you're, if you're looking at this by means of some kind of a, a you know, motion picture or something. You think of like an invitation to follow the white rabbit. That would be goofy compared to this. This is none other than the supernatural means by which the God of the universe is going to reveal His plan to save the world through a backward man who ran in the night, denied Jesus three times, wept on a beach filled with the Holy Spirit and now is the man with the message. It's not His message. It's the message of Christ's love. But that will unlock the door. And aren't we grateful? We're the Gentiles. And it started with this man named... Cornelius a couple of days later Peter meets Cornelius at his home finds the place full of people waiting to hear what he has to say Peter's still unsure as to what this is all about and begins by clearing the air I, I kind of like this it sounds like a you know a, a, a nice official way to say what is this all about Make sense of this for me. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me, and wonder wonder where he sh- how he showed him, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So the, the the dream about the food is really to teach you about the people. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. It'd probably be worth our time to answer the question why can't or couldn't Jews eat with Gentiles? How else are they supposed to be a blessing to them? Go be a blessing to the world, but you can't eat with them. Well, you're not going to find a real clear commandment in Scripture do not eat with Gentiles. Though there's different rabbinic schools as to how in eating context, not to become defiled. So it's kind of one of those things where, okay, don't do this, this, and that. And then the conclusion is, oh, okay. Well, there's no eating with them. Because if we eat with them, we're going to wind up eating something that's not kosher. And if we somehow miraculously survive not eating something kosher, then we can't use any of their dishes because they're not washed the right way. And... If we eat, say, some food that happens to be kosher, but not on a plate, how do we know they didn't sacrifice it to an idol before we got here? It's not going to work. It's, it's just, there's no plausible deniability after having been at table with Gentiles. So they just don't do it. Um, one time, uh, back in Virginia after having spent uh, years in a missions relationship with the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. You may have seen these folks, the Rabbi Eckstein, before his uh, passing, be on, on TV uh, with these commercials of taking Jews that were starving in Russia and old Comblock states and allowing them to uh, a pilgrimage. They call it Aliyah, back to Israel. It's a a wonderful organization, but the man's coming to speak, and it's my job to provide a kosher lunch. So I consulted with the Google (laughs) to find out what I'm supposed to do, and I found out it's not as complicated as you would think. Uh, Any type of fruit, God gives a covering, which the Hebrews say is so don't cut it don't cut up the fruit don't give them a fruit salad with cut up strawberries just give them a pile of strawberries and they're good also if you go to the store and buy say some cream cheese some bagels some locks, which I did don't open them if they have the K on the package then the facility that prepared it is kosher but if you open it and you touch it with an unwashed hand or unwashed utensil like a knife. No longer kosher. So if you can do those two things and then buy prepackaged cutlery and don't open that. Lay it all out real pretty with some flowers. You may get what I consider to be a fine certificate of completion from the rabbi's daughter himself who said you just joined a very short list of Americans that actually did this right. <laughs> Thank you. We can eat. So They ate, and then we ate, because I I keep my hands and my stuff away from, from any of what's called kosher. That's what's going on here. For him to stay with a tanner isn't kosher. For him to go inside the house of Cornelius isn't kosher. He had a dream of a blanket that was not kosher. Peter can now have bacon, but there's more to it than that verse 30 Cornelius said four days ago about this hour I was praying man stood to me in bright clothing said send to Joppa I sent for you at once you've been kind enough to come now we're all here for what? to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord this is what's great one guy dreams go find this fellow and bring him in he'll tell you what you need to know the other fellow has a dream go there You'll find out what you're supposed to do. And this is a prime example of when Jesus said, don't think about what you're going to say before you get there. I'll give that to you out of what I taught you over the time we were together. It won't, you won't need to make up your own remarks. You're just going to tell them the story that, that was what I did. And that's exactly what Peter does. Long story short, which we read entirely already, Because Peter truly understands that God shows no partiality, that's verse 34, he starts preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while he is speaking and they are believing, the Holy Spirit falls just like it did in Jerusalem and Samaria. The Gentiles receive the gospel and God receives the Gentiles. It's an amazing story. But that's how it happened. So, how about a few points under the heading, what can we learn from this? How do we take what was and use it in the is, the here and now, that was then and there. First, let's make sure that we're clear on what made the difference in salvation coming to the Gentiles. First, it came to Cornelius. If you were Cornelius... And you had the week Cornelius had. How would you describe it, other than what we read? The official report from Luke was this amazing dream man in bright clothing, scared to death, specific instructions which were explicitly followed. Would you post that? Would you sh- would would you expect a lot of likes and shares? Do you think anybody would respond with a book deal? you got to admit, this doesn't happen every day. So, and, and not just that. To find out that the guy in your dream actually is where the guy in the dream said he would be. And that your men that you sent to get him actually brought him back. And that the guy in the dream actually had a dream of his own that had this crazy blanket full of weird food. Do you know how people clamor for this stuff in Christian circles? Do you know how those books sell? Do you know how much pastors have to untangle when people go after that? And none of that saved Cornelius. Without the message, he's as lost as he was before, but with a more fantastic story to tell than he did before it happened. So the gospel, the salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation is not in the miracle. The miracle is to show that it's true. It's just a sign pointing. You know, it, we don't have a big fit over the Smithfield sign on 40. The fit we have over the barbecue and the chicken that's not kosher that the sign points to, right? we have been through this before. But it bears mentioning. Let's, let's make sure that, that it's, <laughs> it's not the signs and the miracles that we're after. They have their place. I think God still uses them according to His terms. But people in the, Old Te- in the New Testament had a trouble fancying the gifts. So do we. We should fancy the gospel because that's what it was for. It was only the gospel, the good news, delivered, heard, believed that saved them so then there's a lesson in the way these men both Peter and Cornelius were before chapter 10 before Peter met Cornelius he thought a certain way that changed afterward and before Cornelius met Jesus he had a way of thinking that changed after he met him so let's explore these two and then we'll pray we'll sing and we'll Go eat something unkosher. (laughs) Right? Amen. The two amens. Before he met Cornelius, Peter had been unknowingly enrolled in a diversity class. You know how some people are conscripted to take anger management or something like that? Well, he's been enrolled. Don't know if he realizes it yet. But his test scores are kind of hit or miss. Uh, Back in chapter 8, he and John went to Samaria, seemed to do very well there. And then there's this uh, Simon the Tanner, that's working well too. He falls into the trance on the roof though. Did you notice his first response to that dream and the command to kill and eat? No way. Never done that before. How can I do that now? And then the stiff arm. Don't you call common what I've made clean. Now we know there's a little translation there. By the time you get to, don't call these people unreachable if I've died for them. It's basically the translation between the illustration and the point Peter was to take. Um, I think he passes the test at Cornelius' house with flying colors. I learned that God is not a, you know, uh, worried about who's who. So I came at once. And then if we were to fast forward through the New Testament, there is this refresher course in this diversity training when Paul says, listen, you're doing fine eating with these Gentiles till all Jews came to Antioch. And now you won't eat with Gentiles anymore because you're worried what the Jews will think of you. And he withstands him to the face. If I had a Bible time machine, I'd want to go watch that. Maybe transform to a fly on the wall instead of just standing there going. (laughs) But. Isn't this why we like Peter? He's like us. How many things from Scripture did the Lord tell us once and it was good from then on? No, we need to be told again and again and again and again and a thousand times and if you add it all up and say can you obey these things or not the obvious answer is no that's why we need salvation so the problem here with Peter before he met Cornelius and we see glimpses of it after he met Cornelius is that Peter like most of us had obstacles in his heart that prevented him from reaching out to certain others with the gospel of truth he had a problem with what God had made clean because sometimes it looked common we do that we do it a lot and we do it in different ways and we do it for different reasons um, how many of you like meeting the new guy at work how many of you like meeting anybody for any reason because you don't know them they don't know you usually you put on some type of front which is an exaggeration of things once you get to know each other you find out you're real people if you allow that to even happen and eventually they see what's wrong with you right and we all want to like to think that we've got our way of doing things that you know other people do it different so because I don't like the way they do it and they don't like the way I do it we don't have to like each other Uh you could just make a, a whole list. Color in all the the, the O's in your, your your Bible and have a list to represent each one. Sometimes it's economic. We don't really work well around people above us or below us, but everybody's right where we are. You can't really complain about the boss man with... The boss's buddies, you complain about the boss man with your buddies who work for the same boss man, right? Um, It could be cultural. It could be ethnic. That's what's going on here with the Jews and the Gentiles. It could be political. The red and the blue have never been further apart. There's never been so little purple in America, I don't think. used to be a nice... Big purple dot we could all live in and be happy. And it used to be generations past, you didn't talk about religion and you didn't talk about politics because it might ruin dinner. Uh, You could talk about politics now and it might ruin your life. You feel, right? So would you say that it's far to think that we might have... Obstacles in our head that we don't know about or our heart that would prevent us from talking to someone who's different than we are? Absolutely, yes. And then I think there's one thing that's worse than all of it together, because we've just been talking about basically moral neutral things here, perhaps. But we like to look at some forms of sin as grosser than others, don't we? Because some sin is more respectable. We'd say, no, that's false on a quiz. But if there's a certain sin that is a certain part of a certain culture, then it kind of gets sort of overlooked. Except to people in another culture that it lands on and and it looks real bad. But we do that. We all like to think that our problem is less of a problem than somebody else's problem as far as sin goes. Wouldn't you say We could start with a real easy example. Like say there's a person who absolutely despises and can't stand someone who would would steal or lie. But because they waste inordinate amounts of time, have real, basically bond to the sin of laziness, right? So maybe he'd be real good at door-to-door witnessing in a lazy neighborhood but wouldn't go to the neighborhood where people lie and steal. Right? Makes sense? How about one that would really stir some thinking? In that list, Paul puts together in the early chapters of Romans that paint a very gruesome picture as to why we need salvation. You know, you know the list. And let's just pick one out of the middle of it that we just don't even talk about. Sexual sin. Do you think from the throne of heaven there's any difference between heterosexual sin and homosexual sin? Both are against God's plan. Neither are concerned about Children. She says, Why God gave us that? That was the first thing He told us to do. But depending on the way you look at life, the way you were raised, when one sin comes on the scene and is bigger and more prominent than it used to be, we want to think it's grosser than the rest that we've lived in and around for generations, right? might that foster a, a stumbling block or a big fat wall? Okay, I, I'll, I'll focus on these for ministry, but I don't, I don't care anything about talking to anybody that has anything to do with that. This one hurts. And the one that, 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 that Paul's going to have to remind Peter of has to do with people that aren't like him. And what other people that are like him think about him when he thinks about those they don't like differently than they do. We'll act like chameleons when when we're around certain circles. You know, just trying to get by, you know. Don't call common what I've made clean. And if you need any help with who deserves the grace of God, just read John 3.16. Whosoever Believes should not perish and have everlasting life. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus. All right, that was before Cornelius met Peter, or Peter met Cornelius rather. Let's look at before Cornelius met Jesus. Before Jesus was known to Cornelius, Cornelius had been convicted but not converted. He's convicted or he wouldn't live the way he was. He's not converted because he doesn't know the gospel. He was careful to do all the right things, careful to avoid all the bad things. He was a respected, honorable, generous God-fearer, but he didn't know Jesus as the only source of true salvation. He didn't know Jesus as the one who died in his place having paid for his sin. Religious, yes, but regenerate, no. I think churches are full of Corneliuses. And some preachers make it easy to be a Cornelius in the church because they don't get right down to the brass tacks. You are a sinner. You can't be holy. You have no hope of heaven. Jesus knows this. That's the whole plan. He came to be a human who never sinned in order to die and take your punishment. Fulfilling the curse of sin. All you must do is trust him by faith. Call him your king and lord. Let Him be your righteousness and you give Him your sin. Don't cover it up. Don't say, this is mine. Don't look at it. Confess it. Give it to Him. It's called repentance. He'll take it to the cross, it's retroactively, and it'll kill Him instead of killing you. That's the gospel. That's how it works. Cornelius didn't know this until he had the message that explained it to him. So how do we fix that? What's the fix for Cornelius in the church? Abandon your hopes for heaven by your own doing. Instead, you must completely trust the goodness of another to do it for you. Paganism is thinking that I have an alien problem in my heart. It came from somewhere, don't know where I got it. Maybe from a water fountain, who knows. But I'm messed up. But It's not my fault because I'm a good person. It's an alien problem. And if I find the right person, the right book, or dig down deep enough, internally, I have the answer to that. I'll fix it. That's paganism. Christianity is that your problem is internal. It's not just your fault. It's who you are. And you need an alien solution. A righteousness you know not of applied to your account. Then you'll be saved. That's Christianity. This happens only through believing the message of the gospel of Jesus who came to this world to take your sin, give you his righteousness, so that instead of being an offense to his father because of your disobedience that traces back to the garden, you're considered his child because of Jesus' obedience applied to your account as a gift of grace. Do any of you know a better story than that? We have heaven. And we're Gentiles. And this is how it got to us through Peter in a dream. It's the same book and we can say the same thing for chapter 10 as we did 9 and the same thing we say today about chapter 11 next week. The gospel keeps going out and God keeps bringing people in. Praise be to God for His unspeakable gift. Let's us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for this, Your Word, for what it means. Lord, would You give us a heart for the lost, those that live close by and those that live far away. Lord, impress upon us the this, this sphere of, of, of our proximity. That those we are planted closest to, we're to consider more of a responsibility to tell. Lord, you may use, who knows, to impress upon us what we need to do and say. That's your business. But our commission as a result of our salvation is that we tell the truth, to bear witness. Lord would you, in your way, and according to your grace, tear down the walls we've built around ourselves that make us feel less dirty, that make us feel more special or righteous, more put together, We're lost without you. But Lord, if those walls create a problem between us and to Cornelius, would you be so honored and glorified to do for us what we see having been done in Acts chapter 10. That's our request. We'll trust you to grant it and for the strength to be useful. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.